Hello and welcome to Improvsophy, the show where two friends have living room discussions for your daily life. Today we'll be talking about C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, and the love we'll be talking about this podcast is affection. Stay tuned. That's good tea. <laughs> it is. What What are you drinking today? Sleepy time tea. Sleepy uh, herbal time. tea. Caf- it's herbal free, or excuse me, herbal tea, caffeine free, celestial seasonings. No sponsors. We're off to a great start. Yes. Well, you better not fall asleep during this. <laughs> nah. I just needed something from my throat. All right. So today we are on the first love of C.S. Lewis's four loves called Affection. Uh, yeah, just some context, um, affection, affection, C.S. Lewis views as kind of the broadest love. The, the image that he uses is a, is like a mother puppy, um, you know, kissing all the little, um, puppies in the litter that it's, it's kind of like a love for, that's like distributed to all those around them. And yeah, so that, that's the image he uses, and it's it's kind of an affection that has humble beginnings. It starts off very small. Um, you might not know you have affection for someone, and then it it sneaks up on you, <coughs> and you learn that you really appreciate someone's company who's been around you a while. Uh, so yeah, that's that's starting off. What what are your first First pass it at thoughts, Jordan. Uh, my my first thoughts was this is at least the way he put it was this was a a baseline for most of how our loves can possibly start. Uh, having an affection for one another in such a way that gives us the grounding for our loves. Um, don't know how else to put it, but it's. And I like how later on in the chapter, Lewis goes on to how this kind of love can be kind of twisted in a way. Uh, if it's not, as we mentioned in the last podcast, if it's not properly ordered. Uh, yeah, if you don't have an affection for something, basically, it can amount to, do you truly desire that sort of thing? Hmm. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, we, we will get in, into the ways that I guess it could break down at some point or, or or people could think they're doing something out of love, but they're like, you know, pampering an animal to death or, mm-hmm. or that's, or something. Um, yeah, so C.S. Lewis, he also thinks that affection is the most animalistic of loves. Do you think you could describe why that is, Jordan? <laughs> are you asking me because you don't know, or are you asking me because you want me to ask, answer? Excuse me. I think you get more information if you if you have a clumsy answer than just <laughs> matter of factly say things. So I, I like how you ask me. So um, the question you were asking was basically why is it that C.S. Lewis thinks 
that affection is the basis of love or not basis but the grounding of loves or it's more animalistic i suppose that in the wild you see say primates how they show affection for one another how a mother is grooming her her baby you can also see it even if you have got a litter of puppies at home how the mother dog is being affectionate towards her, her puppies or the the mother cat is being affectionate towards a kitten so too as well think of a, a human mother showing great affection towards her child same thing goes for a father as well but a father's affection can be a bit different in the way he shows it from a mother it's just it's two different ways on how they show affection but i suppose a good first starting question and not question but a starting application is how does one show personal affection towards those who they love um, i suppose a good starting is outward expression obviously um, while at the same time maintaining an inward affection so i guess a good way of putting it is how do we know if we have an inward affection towards another person what do you think Corey? yeah as far as affection for me i like back scratches <laughs> <laughs> just to be very down to earth uh i also like people playing with my hair or vice versa hmm. um <laughs> but yeah i think something c.s lewis was saying about affection is that it it doesn't it, it can kind of extend to all people like you can be friendly with people that you don't have the same goals with mm -hmm. um you, you can just you know just be like gentle and kind to them um, and it, it doesn't have to mean you have a, a super deep ethical obligation. Uh, like those ethical obligations you're born into, like I'm born into a family and I have like an obligation to love them because they're my only family. I'm the only um, son to my father. And then there's obligations that you put yourself into. Um, I'm choosing to get married and I am committing myself to this human person wife <laughs> just human uh, so I, I think the affection can extend beyond the you know chosen friendships or chosen commitments or even the commitments that have just you've been born into uh, so, so yeah those two ideas um, yeah I, I guess I wouldn't ask strangers to scratch my back <laughs> um I like you, Corey, but I don't know if I like you that much. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just two guys at a microphone, um, <laughs> very apart. Um, yes, two guys five feet away. <laughs> we are about five feet, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, th I think I, I do like what you're saying about, I think you answered that super well with the animal, like the instinctual part of affectionate love that in the evolution of love or to the point that creatures became conscious of the reality of love, uh, it does start with attachment between parents and offsprings between, you know, like birds and their eggs um, or whatever, or especially mammals because they have to um, breastfeed. So they, there's even an additional amount of attachment even after birth. Um, 
Yeah, so I, I, I can see why it's the most animalistic, and I, I probably just agree with what, what you said in C.S. Lewis. And it was, it was also interesting, C.S. Lewis had this quote um, about affection can be interspecies. He gives the example of someone owning a dog and a cat, and the dog like tries to groom the cat, and it's this weird like ecology experiment where two things that don't know each other, mm-hmm. like neither one's predator, neither one's prey, they're kind of equal, and then there's this strange transference of affection. <laughs> mm-hmm. I- don't know if i really have anything to comment on that but uh that is something that's interesting you know when you're a little kid you always think cats and dogs never get along but then once you hear stories or see videos of cute kitten with a cute puppy or something and they're best friends you're like oh that's adorable i didn't know that existed i guess the thing that's off the top of my head is what is a surprising affection from other people so i suppose that would be a way of seeing if you had a cat and a dog and they somehow started getting along and you're like oh well that's cute would be a surprising affection for us i guess if a friend was like hey i i got you some food eat because i care about you did you ask for food or is this (laughs) no demand no this is more of uh if a friend was out and they call you say hey i'm out uh, and I'm heading over to you. Do you want something to eat? I suppose that could be a, a sense of surprise affection. Oh, I suppose that could also be a sense of agape, but uh, Lewis doesn't go into agape love in, in his book, although he might later on. I haven't gone on later. Yeah, and another, another note with, with affection being animalistic, and it's, it's very baked into instincts. Mm-hmm. Uh, starting off the, the chapter... Um, I begin with the humblest and most diffused loves, which we already already mentioned that affection starts kind of as slow and humble beginnings. Uh, and let me add at once, I do not on account give it a lower value. Nothing as man is nothing in man is either better or worse uh, for being shared with the beasts. So j- just because there is this instinct element of affection doesn't mean it's like more or less beautiful. Mm-hmm. Although there are specific pitfalls of it being instinctual, like you can have someone being overprotective or or something associated with with instinct that like becomes a problem. Uh, but it it doesn't. It can still be beautiful. It doesn't have to be something to make cynical mm-hmm. yeah. um, I wonder how it can be viewed as something that's beautiful I suppose as we've mentioned already um, seeing it not, not so much even with amongst animals but I suppose amongst friends seeing how they can treat one another think about aggressive affection amongst guys where some of them it's almost as if though you think that they're insulting each other but as a matter of fact it's a term of endearment like i I don't know this is going to be a lame excuse but like dude did you get your hair cut from a weed whacker it's like 
no, I got it cut from your mom or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. But they're oh, do, they're doing it in a spirit of of uh, what what's the word that people use? Just or yeah, and camaraderie because they know that they're not trying to be hurtful with one another. And Lewis mentions that later on in the chapter as well. How one could it depends on the tone and the context of how thing is how a thing is being said. Uh, That's actually uh, funny because my examples are like back scratching and playing with hair, yeah. and then you. <laughs> And then yours is like the super masculine, like, dude, bro, let's let's throw the pigskin around. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I just realized how feminine my examples were. Hey, it's, it's okay. <laughs> different, peop- different people do different things. Oh, man. Um, this is too good. I lift 5,000 pounds. You, you like to go out and, I don't know, lift, lift your, I, I don't know. This joke fell flat. <laughs> Oh, it happens to the best of us. Uh, so far, so good. Yeah, and then later on, he just repeats that just because there's four loves that they can mix together. Mm-hmm. He uses the example of a mixed drink. Like, oh, affection can be like gin in a mixed drink. And it, yeah. it can mingle and have a conversation with friendship or eros or charity. Um, the three other loves, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry to give it a spoiler there. Um, yeah, that's a good note. Um, just flipping through my notes here. Oh, he also mentions the difference between a kiss of affection and a kiss of, um, Eros. Mm-hmm. Any, yeah, I remember um, that. Any thoughts on that? No, uh, so if I were to go across the table and give Corey a nice kiss on the forehead, you could s- consider that a kiss of affection. But if I were to uh, say go a little, well, I'm just not going to go more graphically detailed. You, you might get a punch of affection. <laughs> um. But it it would depend on, as mentioned, the context and the people who you're uh, mixing with. Like I think you can kiss a kid on the head, and it's mm-hmm. it's not like. It's not like you're going to be a put, predator yeah. type situation. You're not going to be put on uh, a registry where you're going to have to go around town saying, "Hey," you knock on the door and say, "Hey, I have to let you know I'm <laughs> oh I'm this sort of thing." I don't want to say it, but may, yeah, maybe we, maybe if this maybe if this podcast show grows to an exponential length, I'll go into more detail. <laughs> I guess it's up to the viewers. Um... But yeah, that's yeah. You gotta burn your bridges before you cross them, or whatever. Wait, yeah. what was I saying? No, don't don't burn your bridges. But the okay. there's a a funny metaphor saying, uh, "We'll burn that bridge when we cross it." Oh yeah, yeah. The malaphor. The um. Yeah. It, it's like saying rather than it's water under the bridge, it's it's water under the dam. Like it, yeah. I, I have a coworker that always says those. Um, I'll kill two stones with one bird, kind of thing. <laughs> uh. Yeah, and I think, so he talks about, and I'd rather, I'd almost, I like where this is going. I'm just going to keep the flow of, yeah, of just um, trying to almost recreate his chapter just over speech. And then if we want to read the text and fill in some gaps, we could, but I think mm-hmm. we're, I think we're rolling pretty well. Yeah, I'm good with that. 
Yeah, I think so. He talks about what I call a balanced um, form of affection. At at one side of the spectrum, it becomes needy. The example C.S. Lewis uses is um, King Lear uh, from Shakespeare, mm-hmm. and basically has to divide up his kingdom between his three daughters and and their, um, you know, who they're marrying. Who will be the new um, heirs? So he's splitting his kingdom into thirds, and he he just wants to be a nice guy. He just wants to please them. He's like needy. He wants their affection, and as a result, it doesn't get the best outcome, and the three kingdoms go to war, or, or however it ends. Uh, so on one side of the spectrum, there's this very needy version of um, affection. Um, it, it's I guess it's in the case of wanting affection and almost like instinctually wanting it too much rather than it, it just being a natural part of life. And then on the other side of the spectrum, there is being overbearing. Mm-hmm. The example C.S. Lewis uses is this fictional character called Miss Fidget. And wait, wait, was she actually fictional? I thought he was referring to an actual person. I, I think it's a literary device. Like she's always fidgety. Oh, okay, okay. That, that um, makes sense. So, so the joke is that there's this lady called Miss Fidget, and once she dies, her whole family life improves, and he, he kind of does this exploration of it. It's like, oh, well, Miss Fidget, she said she worked her knuckles raw for her family, and she loved them, and she made them lunches for meals every day, and they were really bad lunches and insisted that they... <laughs> that they... um. <laughs> That they ate them, and she also tried her hand at being a seamstress, and she, you know, made clothes clothes that would make those who go to Coachella cry. Um, no one in the right mind would wear these clothes, but she insisted on them, and she also insisted on doing the laundry poorly, and everything had wrinkles. And she she's trying to be affectionate, but it's it's just in this very uneasy. Um, sense where she's just overbearing mm-hmm. um so it's it's just this joke that um yeah she died the family got a lot better the vicar said that their charity to the church went up and <laughs> everything's just better <laughs> i found that was uh, the part that i found rather interesting now that I guess I, I wasn't paying too much attention in regards to it being a just a literary figure rather than a literal figure. I, I was thinking he was referring to somebody in his life that he knew as a Miss Fidget, but I guess not. Now that you explain, I'm like, okay, I think that makes sense. But uh, that I wonder if there are people like that. They try, they actually do try to be a little bit overbearing, or not try to be overbearing, but they are a bit overbearing in their affection. And you wonder, you're just smothering me, please. I need a little bit of space here. Uh, yeah, the like the overbearing mother archetype always like stunts the growth of mm-hmm. of the son or daughter. Um, just just to put in Jungian terms. Yeah, yeah. Because pe- people need their autonomy. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's right and good for people to have some sort of dominion and to. You know, like have within that dominion be able to set their own rules. Mm-hmm. So you're at my apartment right now, and I 
can set up an environment of how I treat you. Um, you asked if you could make tea earlier, and I was like, yes, but I could have just said, no, I hate tea, and like <laughs> thrown it out my window. Like, like when you have a dominion, you have this ability to to create a create an environment for how you treat people, how you make things equitable, um, how you love people, and that also relates to autonomy. Um, so for me to have my own dominion, I also need my own autonomy, and it's healthy to have that. But the overbearing mother figure, they keep their child under their roof, and, and therefore they don't gain autonomy because they're always under a rule set that's that they can't refine or develop. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a good way of putting it is I'm doing this for your own good. I, th I think some parents do legitimately know where to cross the line when they say that. But unfortunately, some others may have that mindset of I'm doing this for my child's good. I'm doing this for their good. They don't know any better. Uh, I think it's when they when that goes beyond what it should go and that at that point i think the child will start to become resentful towards their parent so i guess an, an example a good example of this is a father trying to get their son or daughter this sort of job and even if it may help them more financially what are some other areas of their lives that they may not be that they may not realize what's going on so what if the the child is saying or even if they don't say anything they're thinking dad or mom whoever i've got all these other aspects of my life if you introduce this type of job into my life this is going to put a huge wrench into my other activities that i've already got going on certain social gatherings that I've, that I'm already a part of. Uh, I don't know what, what are some other things that might be affected in that area that you might think of? Uh, yeah, I, I think you have to believe people are generally self-correcting if you're to think autonomy is a good thing. And that means that people need to integrate their whole personality and find a sense of wholeness um, yeah, so I think if someone else tells you, for your sake, you need to, you know, become the heir of my family business or this or that, and you keep on forcing it, sometimes it just works, but you, you might come out to a bad solution that actually doesn't touch all the parts of the other person's personality. It, it might legitimately just turn into a bad fit if you're, um... If you're overbearing on what your child's to do with their life. I was just getting some more tea. Um, <laughs> uh, I had to like keep on talking because he was yeah, coming you, back. You, you, you did a good job filling in the gaps. So tell me about tell me about overfed dogs. Overfed dogs. I suppose it's uh, think about a dog who always wants food, always craving food. The, the master gives the dog their scraps all the time or always filling up their dog bowl like saying, oh, they're, they're just always hungry or they're just trying to be feeding them instead of tempering their appetite saying, no, I've already fed you today. You don't need any more. I suppose a good understanding of giving 
enough affection while withdrawing is a good way of putting it. So think about a mother or a father who can give the right amount of affection when the child, let's say, is ex expressing some spoiled behaviors. So if a child's wanting, I don't know, always to be comforted and everything, and the mother or father are like, no, you don't need this right now. This won't be good for you. What are some comments that you have? I'm kind of... Yeah, um, yeah. the overfed dog was... Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you, I think you picked up on what I was saying. Yeah, at the end, he he uses the example of pampered pets as like a, a pitfall of... Do you want another one? I do, I'm good on my tea. <laughs> okay. I like tea a lot. I get, hmm, I'm trying to think of like the most... The worst pet I've seen, like... I saw this friend's chihuahua and it was... <laughs> of course it's a chihuahua. Yeah, it's a chihuahua, so it's like inbred to hell and back because um, <laughs> that's chihuahuas. I like how you say inbred. It is, it is, dude, if it's any more inbred, it would be a sandwich. <laughs> Certain choice words, interesting. <laughs> I'll take you a second to catch up on that one. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, and this, this puppy was like, I'll call it a pupper because it was, it was chunky. <laughs> I swear, it was like the biggest thing I've ever seen. It was like, I almost want to say like 16 pounds, which is ridiculous. Oh, for, like, for a chihuahua, yeah, that's that's ridiculous. It should be five or six pounds at most. Like humans have like my 60 pound life on the learning channel. And this dog probably had like my 16 pound life. Like, oh, I got to feed my dog chalupas. Oh, time for a cheese party. Time for, oh my gosh, this this dog was so overfed. Um, but yeah, I, I'm getting way off track. Oh, you're fine. Yeah, C.S. Lewis um, uses the example of people that over pamper their pets as like a certain pitfall of the of the affection um, instinct that it feels good to have something completely dependent on me, and I get to feed it and nurture it, uh, e even when the the dog can't exhibit its nature properly. Like it can't go outside and chase birds or, um, you know, do all the dog things. Like it can't dig holes. Um, sometimes dogs will try to dig in blankets or couches cause they have that instinct left over. But mm -hmm. like there's a point at pampering when it can't even exhibit being a dog properly. Um, so that's, pretty random but that's just a an example of a pitfall as far as affection of of using this maternal overbearing instinct on something that can't change you yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> i guess it's a what is it too much gift loving uh, an over extension of gift loving where somebody wants to feel that sense of somebody or something needs me and like you mentioned the overfeeding of the dog or pampering and lewis also mentions monkeys he says that those things are probably the closest thing that you can have to i guess over pampering is he said he was surprised to find out about that oh yeah it makes a joke like if you want if you want closer to the real thing if you want something that 
like you can pamper and it can't do anything about it that's close to human why don't you get a pet monkey mm-hmm. yeah um that's pretty funny yeah another thing this is kind of the last actually um written down thing he talks about the challenge to affection being change that there's a certain amount of offense that happens when a change enters the scenario. So the kids leave, um, leave the house and the mom's offended because it kind of goes against this instinct of affection. It's like something's changing. I don't like this. I'm angry. My kids are leaving. Uh, or another example is you know, you come back to your house and all the kids are, are like different because they, they grew the heck up being in the real world. Um, and then it's, it's this weird, like, like, oh, you're under my roof and now things are super different. And there's, there's this offense with things changing, um, which mind you, it's natural for things to change. But it's, I, I guess it's one of the ways that C.S. Lewis wants us to be aware of affection and how it operates. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I really have too many thoughts on that matter. I guess it's like anything else. It can, If you let something grow too much, it becomes too much, not so much too much to handle, but Think about putting too many apples in your arms. You have enough, but eventually if you put too many, it's just going to spill over and make a mess. I don't know why I thought of apples. It's the first thing that came to mind. Wait, what does that relate to the... Oh, well, what I'm thinking of is... If, handle. if you're... So think about having too much affection for a thing. Going back to the dog analogy, overfeeding it, or over pampering your child the especially for the mother saying oh look how adorable they are let's put them in this whatever clothes that they, that I bought for them let's let's take them around to our friends and show them off the child may be a little afraid but then once they get older and they're and the parent is still treating their child like this the child will more than likely i assume would be resentful saying leave me alone I need my space right now. Yeah, there's different, I guess, responses to stunting a, a child's growth by pampering. Mm-hmm. I, I think some kids can just, you know, just, just absorb it and just become really spoiled. Or some could be like the sarcastic teen, like, ah, mom, like, the mom's like picking hairs off of the kid's like clothes while he's leaving school. And it's like, ah, mom, just... Just give me space. Yeah. Yeah. I think for a personal example, I feel like my mom had that right amount of affection where I didn't, I never felt embarrassed by my parents whenever they were around. So my mom never really did anything. And all my friends really liked my, my parents. They thought, they thought they were cool to be around and yeah, look how I turned out. I'd give you like, like a three <laughs> no <I'm> kidding 
I'll give you a three and a half then. A little oh, bit better than me. That's the nicest thing anyone said to me. Oh, man. Three uh, and a half out of four. Uh, what's, what's the move? Just... Like, I could leaf through the book one more time and see if I missed anything. Yeah. But I'm... Yeah, I, I think for now what we can do here... Let me see here. Not all kisses are affection. There was one point. Ooh, I got something. This could be the last thing we end on if... Let me let you talk first, though. Yeah. Um, I think there was something on here... Or Lewis is quoting Ovid. If uh, starting from this quote here, page fifty-four, uh, second paragraph, and all the while they remain unaware of the real road. If you would be loved, be lovable," said Ovid. Here's how it's actually interpreted: that cheery old reprobate only meant, if you want to attract the girls, you must be attractive. But this maxim has a wider appeal application excuse me so and he also mentions king lear the amorous was the wise yeah the amorous was the wiser in his generation than mr pontifex and king lear there's a little bit more context going on there but i think what lewis is meaning here if you were just to take that phrase in our day and age if you want to be loved be lovable well taking that out of its context like oh well, yeah, that makes sense. If you want to be loved, love others. But Lewis, who is a lot more familiar with older literature, uh, meant it as if you want to be, if you want to attract other attractive people, you yourself must be attractive. It's like, oh, well, then that's a more degenerate way of understanding things. In a sense, that is true. But, yeah, like you can. Yeah, if affection's like an instinct, you can definitely try to do things that. Um, touch on these associations that we have. Uh, the, I don't know, you can try to look really cute or, mm-hmm. it, I don't know, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. Um, like if I went to work and dressed like a lot younger, people at work would probably treat me like I'm younger. Mm-hmm. But if I grew up my beard, people might treat me more like an adult. There's ways that you can kind of use externals to to change how people treat you based on affections towards certain ages. Yeah, that makes sense. But I guess going into the whole thing about love and being loved, uh, there's that whole cliche of if you want... I I don't know how else to put it, but love is all you need love 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 is all you need to quote the beatles that's a good one but i think the understanding of the previous generations at least of last century of love was uh love is this kind of feeling of affection in a sense it is but love is more than just that love to quote dc talk is a verb it's more than just what you feel but it's something you also do and if it's never something that you do, can you say that you truly love somebody? Because think about the things that you have affection for. Because those things that you have affection for, you actually show that affection. Because it's not enough just to say to your significant other, I love you. And you go 
then you go somewhere else or you don't pay much attention to them. True love, or at least a form of true love, I should say, is uh, putting in the work for it. And of course, there's a there's a time where it says where love can feel like a chore, which I guess you could say it might be. But if love starts to become a chore for you, you need to ask yourself, what is it that I'm doing or what is it that somebody else is doing that's causing it to be a chore? So I suppose a way of putting it is, how can we have our affections flow more naturally in our lives to bring it to a more practical application? Okay, there's two ideas. I'm trying to get them together. Uh, I do want to talk about page 47. And yeah. this is going to give you like a 20 to 30% answer on your question. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> 47, you said? Yeah, then it flips over to the next page. Uh, C.S. Lewis is trying to account for how with affection there can be these different tastes that I might appreciate back scratches and Jordan might be appreciative of being smacked on the shoulder and I guess a you, your mom joke is what you used earlier <laughs> for, for your um, bro talk example. Uh, doo -doo -doo. Yeah, so he's talking about the type of person who you're affectionate towards them, quote-unquote, but then in their own way, that you can be affectionate towards someone even if they're not really your cup of tea as far as their humor. Uh, and this, and I'll start reading, and this, in your own way, means that they are getting beyond their own idiosyncrasies, um, that we are learning to appreciate goodness or intelligence in themselves not merely goodness or intelligence flavored or served to suit your own palate. And then jumping down, I'm going to miss some, some logic. Um, a truly wide taste in humanity will similarly find something to appreciate in the cross section of humanity whom one has to meet every day. And I, I think where C.S. Lewis is going is that a perfected form of affectionate love is to have this appreciation for the whole cross-section of humanity. Some people's idiosyncrasies might rub you the wrong way or someone might not be, you know, like your cup of tea, but it doesn't mean you hate them. Um, in fact, you could respect them and be affectionate to them. It, you know, um, like, like there is this completion point where you just appreciate all types in their in their diversity mm -hmm. even if you are a particular type and i think that's the goal of affectionate love to have this positive regard for all types around you i'm thinking of how excuse me i'm thinking of how a dog is affectionate to almost everybody it meets although some dogs have different temperaments to others. Some breeds are more violent than others. Well, maybe not necessarily in their entirety. Because if you go into a home, I was I remember going through 
uh, Sherlock Holmes and the character Holmes was mentioning how the temperament of a dog can give you an indication of how the temperament of the owner is or it can give you an indication of how the home itself is for instance if you were to walk into my home obviously at first the dogs would be excited to see you they'd kind of jump on you a little bit but then after a while after a few minutes you'll notice the dogs calm down they kind of go in their own areas they they as like many other dogs like to curl up and sleep for the time until you call them over to show them affection so as an indication for my home you would say well that's probably a peaceful home to stay in because the mm. dogs are generally at ease while dogs that might be super hyperactive always jumping on you always doing something that's probably either now mind you this is my armchair psychology so don't <laughs> don't don't take this as professional advice but don't put down your dog yeah. over this so. yes so if a dog is super energetic or whatever you I, my guess is it's probably a family that does a lot that has high energy or they probably have a lot of uh, anxiety in their home mm. that that's my theory i would have to ha i would have to have some social psychologist or some vet or whatever dog psychologist come in or some therapists come in some sort of scientific test to test to see if that theory is true but that's just that's just an observation from what i've seen from certain places is it 100 percent true maybe maybe not i'd be willing to see if that's true or not but regardless um i suppose that's a good way of putting it all despite all right, I'm going to stop. No, that's, that's super interesting. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's, that's about it with me, dude. Mm -hmm. Thanks for coming over. Yeah. And next week, we are getting into friendship. Yeah. That will be the next love of C.S. Lewis. Or, I don't think... He didn't invent these loves. They're the Greek words, right? Yeah, he. he there, I think there was a total of eight different Greek loves, but I oh think my he, gosh, I think he narrowed it down to four different types. All right. Hopefully, I didn't. Hopefully, I wasn't too far away from the microphone. Hopefully, people can hear me. So he does four, but you think there's eight Greek words for love? Mm-hmm. So it might be. I can't remember the. <laughs> I can't remember them off the top of my head right now. Okay. Might be a couple extra loves. I'm hiding in between the cracks. Um, yeah. There's always room for. For learning more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, all right. See you, dude. Mm-hmm. I like tea. <laughs>